Colossians chapter 4, would you stand with me? And let's read through our text this morning, starting in verse 7 of chapter 4. It says this. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, uh, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and here in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from the Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we just pray, uh, God, that we would see Christ in this this morning, that as we work through this text, Lord, that we would find strength and encouragement. Lord, we just open our hearts to you and pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you'd give the gift of teaching, Lord, and prophecy, that, uh, Lord, you'd take your word and tailor it to each one of our hearts, and that the written word would lead us to Jesus, the living word. And so, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, grab a seat. Well, uh, Friday night, we missed the last two nights of prayer because Lisa and I slipped into the city uh, for a wedding yesterday. And uh, we got to go to a wedding for some old friends when we were, when we were uh, you know, in our early 20s. We joined, joined a home group when we were living in the city still, and it was all young marrieds. And then what happened when you're in a home group with young marrieds is it began, the group began to multiply because we were all having children, you know. It was like baby after baby after baby. And um, some good friends of ours, uh, Grant and Jen, were in that group. And um, some of you have met them over the years. They've spent a lot of New Year's with us here on the Sunshine Coast. And so we went to the wedding for their daughter, Lauren, uh, who's a week younger than our son, Jonah. It was like, you know, when Jonah was born, they were at the hospital with us. And when Lauren was born, we were at the hospital with them. And then when Eli was, well, then their son Luke was born, we were at the hospital. Then Eli was born. You know, it was this whole thing, you know, how we have these wonderful friendships in the kingdom of God. And Lauren was getting uh, married yesterday. And uh, it was bittersweet because um, 10 days ago, Luke passed away, 19 years old. And um, Luke had like gone through some serious trauma in his mid-teens. And, um, and so he dabbled with some substance to try and help himself. And he loved, he loved the Lord and he had been through rehab all summer and was doing really well. And he went to Alberta and just one shot, man. And 
he overdosed. And so this wedding was kind of like, you know, bitter, bittersweet at the same time. There was tons of joy and we were remembering Luke at the same time and, and with, with these friends. And um, it wasn't the biggest wedding. We were seated with this table of all people who were friends of the family. Um, and they kept saying about all of us, our, that's the friend table, but they're really like family. And I was thinking about that because that's the kingdom of God, you know. Aren't you so grateful for the relationships that you have in the kingdom of God over the years and the way Christ has um, come at the center of our friendships in the church, in the body of Christ, how you could be a part of a body somewhere else over the years or placed here on the Sunshine Coast or go somewhere else. And the body of Christ is the body of Christ. And your brothers and sisters, and and here we're sitting around uh, the table. I, I meet somebody new to my right, and I find out, oh, he goes to Uganda and does missions every year. And on my left was a Kenyan fellow that I'd never met. And I'm like, guys, I was Lisa and I were just in Kenya like three weeks ago, and we got to talk all about ministry in Africa, and um, you know, make new friends as. Uh, we're sitting around celebrating this wedding and remembering Luke. And I was thinking about that because you read this, you know, you read the Bible and you're like, oh, end of Colossians chapter four. Well, this is a lame way to close out a great letter. It's just a list of names, right? It's just like a list of names. But I called this message, Every Name Matters, because in the word of God, they're not there by accident, are they? And it's an incredible testimony of Paul and uh, the ministry and the things that God was doing in the Colossian church that every one of these names is mentioned here. And so today, let's take, let's take a peek here. Look at me, look with me at verse 7 again, and let's read this. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, I read that. And again, this isn't just a list of names. And the first thing, the first fellow that's mentioned here is Tychicus. And Paul says about him, about him he'll tell you about all my activities. I'm like, I think to myself, Paul, activities, you're, you're in jail, buddy. You're, you're, you're chained to a Roman soldier. But you know what I love about this? Is that Paul has not, you know, entered some retirement phase in the kingdom of God just because he's in prison. He's busy about the work of the kingdom, even if he's chained to a Roman soldier. It's like there is activities to report. And so he's, he's written this letter for the Colossian church, a written report but he says, Tychicus is going to tell you the verbal report, okay? You're going to, you're going to hear, I bet, I bet Tychicus showed up there in Colossae. And like we talked about last week, he said, well, this soldier got saved. And then this guy got chained to Paul. And he got saved. And then this house church leader came and met us here. And there was lots of activities happening in Rome, even though Paul is chained there. Uh, kingdom work is happening. And so he says about Tychicus, he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant, wonderful qualities that this man possessed. Paul had such a relationship with Tychicus that he could depend upon him, that he was the man in whom 
uh, this Colossian letter was put into his hands. And he said, so when you arrive, don't just give them a letter. Tell them about the activities here in Rome and all that God's doing. And Paul's desire was to be an encouragement to the church, which has been a constant theme throughout Colossians and throughout all of Paul's letters, that the church, that the people of God would be encouraged. And he mentions this, fe this fellow Onesimus. And Onesimus is an interesting character in scripture. In fact, the picture of him becomes fuller when you read the letter to Philemon, because the letter written to Philemon is primarily about this man, Onesimus. Uh, Philemon received his letter with this Colossian letter. The two letters arrived together and Philemon lived in Colossae. Onesimus came from Colossae. And the thing that's interesting about Philemon and this man Onesimus that we read about was that they had a master-slave relationship. Philemon was the master. Onesimus was a slave and he was a runaway slave. He had he had busted free and he'd taken off from his master Philemon and he had fled all the way uh, to Rome. And somehow, I just imagine it was a God thing. He crossed paths with Paul. Paul led him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, in the short time that they knew one another, Onesimus had proven to be a faithful and dear brother to Paul and this guy had an incredible story with regards to the incredible transforming power of the gospel and what it is to know Jesus Christ. Because Onesimus, a runaway slave, had been so transformed by the power of God that he was willing to submit back to slavery and to return to Colossae and to the house of Philemon, travel hundreds of miles and be under this master Philemon, who himself was a believer. And so the letter to Philemon is one that Paul writes and he says, I want you to forgive Onesimus. I know that he's done this. He's taken off on you, but now receive him back and forgive him in Christ. And it's like amazing. It's an amazing story. And it makes me think this, you know, there's like that old question. Well, sometimes people say this, well, the Bible promotes slavery. Have you ever had someone say that to you? I'm like, wow, that, that is so an elementary way of speaking of the Bible, just to say it promotes slavery. No, that's an uninformed person. I want to tell you that. Whenever someone throws that back in your face, it's like, really, the Bible promotes slavery? No, you know, what happens is this. We've seen this throughout history. When a nation gets Christianized and it gets the values of Scripture built into it, what happens to slaves? Slavery is abolished. Slavery is abolished. But what the Bible does do is this, is it deals with the reality of slavery. Because it is a reality in our world. It's a reality. And so what the Bible does and what God commanded his people was to create a framework for the protection of slaves. And, and to put limits on masters and how they would treat slaves. And so I would say this, you know, when someone says the Bible promotes slavery, I'd say, well, that's a pretty surface, uninformed jab at the word of God. To purport, to purport that it promotes slavery. And so, you know, what's amazing here is this, is Paul instructs these two men in Philemon to receive one another as brothers in Christ. And, 
And I think uh, we don't know what all happens with Onesimus, but I think the day we'll find out when we get to heaven that he was set free from slavery. And I bet, you know, him and Philemon were good friends. So again, you know, sometimes you read your Bible and a list of names can be pretty dry reading. But as you dig into the story and the scenes and things that are happening behind, these are, these are great stories of men who worked alongside of Paul. Verse 10 says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes, comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Aristarchus, this man we find out is in prison there with Paul. He was one of Paul's traveling companions. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. He came from Thessalonica. And uh, he had been with Paul and risked his life with Paul. He was with Paul during the riot that happened in Ephesus. He accompanied Paul to Rome from Caesarea when he was imprisoned, which means this, that he was with Paul when Paul was shipwrecked on that famous uh, account from scripture. He wasn't just a fair weather friend, Aristarchus. Whatever the circumstance, a riot, a missions trip, a sailing trip, uh, a storm, even prison, Aristarchus stuck with his friend Paul and they served God in the trenches together. And here's Paul. I mean, Paul is a Official, official prisoner of Rome, and Aristarchus is there on a voluntary basis to serve his brother in the Lord, to help him out, to comfort him, to, to be the guy who's running to and fro from the house where Paul is imprisoned and serving whatever needs to be done. He was a voluntary prisoner for the sake and the benefit of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among those who work with Paul, Aristarchus stands out as one of the greatest helpers, not a guy that we think of often in Scripture. He wasn't looking for the easy task. He didn't pack his bags when things got tough or inconvenient. He suffered and he labored for the gospel alongside his pal Paul. He mentions Mark, who we also know as John Mark, the nephew of Barnabas. He's the author of the gospel of Mark. And Mark, uh, which is Peter's gospel, by the way, right? Like the gospel of Mark is Peter's account of the life and times of Jesus. And so Mark uh, spent significant time with Peter as he found out Peter's story and put pen uh, to the apostles' account of Jesus. And as a young man, Mark had traveled with Paul and Barnabas, his uncle Barnabas. He had gone on the first missionary journey with, with Paul. And they took him along, uh, Mark along, as someone to mentor, as someone to develop, as someone to train to be a leader. And Mark was just a young man. And what happened, you know, from the account of Acts chapter 13, that when the going got tough, Mark got out of there. At some point in time, uh, he bailed on the missions trip and he returned back to Jerusalem, deserting Paul and Barnabas. And the scripture doesn't tell us why that was, why that happened we don't really know you know maybe he was just young enough that the dangers of what they were experiencing or his commitment to the gospel or his commitment to working for christ was just you know the trials were more than he could handle 
Maybe he didn't like the way Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic between them and Paul growing in prominence and Uncle Barnabas slipping to the background. But whatever it was, he ditched them. And when Paul and Barnabas were prepping for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along again, even though he had dipped out on the first time round. And as you know, Paul refused to have him come in such a harsh disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas that they ended up parting ways and going on separate missionary journeys, opposite directions. And so, you know, you think about Mark and you go, wow, you know, way back when, what was Paul thinking? Had he made the right decision when he said, no, Mark, you can't, you can't come. Mark had failed him in the past and Paul knew this, there's trials and there's tribulations and there's sufferings and serving Jesus and there can be tough things in front of you and so you can't come. But in time, what happened? Mark proved himself to be a great asset for Paul and the kingdom of God. He became one of the inner guys. Mark actually became one of Paul's problem solvers along with Titus and Timothy, a man he could rely on to go clean up messy church situations, who he could rely on to deal with false teachers. As a young man, Mark obviously felt called to serve God in some capacity, and yet I think about him, he blew it. He blew it. But I think failure in the end, what it did was it produced in him a resolve to be faithful as he matured. To be faithful in serving God. The things that scared him off when he was young became stepping stones as he matured, and they would not knock him off course in serving God. You know, I was thinking about that because when I was in ministry as a young guy, I packed my bags and left one time. I quit in a situation Lisa and I were in, in my very first church where I was serving. The leaders didn't think I should be going. The elders didn't think I should be going. And Lisa and I thought we should be going. And we packed our bags and we left. And afterwards I thought, oh no, what have I done? That's the end of ministry for me. You had to work through that and wrestle through that and learn the value of serving God and what it costs to do so. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one in the room who's gone through an experience such as that. Mark went through that and he learned from it. And I want to remind you, maybe you're in that place of failure even right now. Get back on the horse. Don't wallow in failures. Get up, man or woman of God. And Mark is a great example of a person who learned from his failures. And obviously, God's hand was on this young man's life. As he matured, he became important to Paul. And Paul specifically requested when he wrote Timothy, Timothy, bring Mark with you. Bring Mark along to Rome because he is helpful to me. In the ministry here. And so, you know, I, I love Mark in scripture. It's a good thing that Mark had a Barnabas in his life to encourage him, right? Uncle Barnabas, who was willing to say, yeah, I, I know you bailed on us here, but come along. Let's go. Let's go. And encouraged him and mentored him in his service to God. Then there's this man named Jesus in the scripture. How would you like to have that name, eh? Yeah, so they found another name for him. They called him Justice. That's what Paul says. And, and uh, Jesus, of course, was a very common uh, Jewish name. So there's these three men, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice. 
they were Jewish Christians. They were uh, three workers uh, of Jewish background who worked alongside of Paul. And then Paul lists three workers from Gentile backgrounds. Check it out. Verse 12, he says this. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those, at Laod, for those in Laodicea and here in Hierapolis. So Epaphras, he actually comes up in the first chapter of Colossians. We talked about him when we started this series back in in June, he had been instrumental in the founding of the church in Colossae. In fact, he was probably the pastor of this church, the man who had planted the church. And Paul calls him a, a servant here. He calls him a servant of Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, he called him a beloved fellow servant. Uh, he loved Jesus, wanted to serve Jesus, wanted to serve the people of God, wanted to share the message of the gospel and one of the things we find out about Epaphras that characterized his ministry was his prayer life. Did you catch that in there? And Paul witnessed it in Rome. It's a daily. This guy's wrestling for you. So I like the example of this man. Epaphras was constant in prayer. That's not the easiest thing, is it? I mean, we all know that. And so I like the word, wording in that verse that says he wrestles in prayer. Prayer's like that a lot of times, isn't it? It's a wrestling match. Awesome picture of what prayer is. It's not soft. It's not weak. Epaphras was getting down to business and he was taking prayer seriously. He was wrestling in the place of prayer. And I love that we're told that uh, about him. And I'm lo I love what we're told about the vein in which he prayed. It's a very specific vein in the way that he prayed for the church. When he thought about his church back home in Colossae, he prayed for those people personally, and his desire was this, that they would stand firm, Paul says, in the will of God, mature and fully assured. He prayed for the stability of their faith. He prayed that they would stand firm. He prayed that there would be a seasoned maturity in their faith that they would be assured that they would have confidence in the Lord and confidence in faith, confidence in the things that they believed. And I, I like that because only in Christ can we truly become mature in faith. And to know God's will like he prayed the Colossians would, it's, it's such a great and powerful thing for us as believers to know the will of God and then to be assured in the will of God. And and I like that he was praying for the church like this. And it just tells us that praying like this will cost you. It involves wrestling. And Epaphras was always doing this. Not sometimes. He was always doing it and it cost him a hard. Paul called him hardworking. Good virtue for a servant of the Lord. Verse 14, he speaks of Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Luke, of course, the doctor, was a man who was very important in the early church. Very important to Paul. He was a Gentile. In fact, he is the only Gentile author of any of the books in our Bible. He authored both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. That's a, it's a, the book of Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And 
So there's Luke, he's with Paul, and it's interesting because, you know, Paul's someone who God used with miracles, man, to perform healings. When Paul prayed for people or laid hands on people, it was not an uncommon thing that there would be a miracle, that there would be a healing. And yet imagine this, one of the closest friends on the inside circle of his ministry team who was always with him was a physician, a medical doctor. And no doubt when you read the story of Paul, he needed to have a doctor around. He needed a physician on his team. Just read his personal story. And it's, it's fairly safe to say that Paul kept Luke busy all on his own, you know. <laughs> Acts tells us he was stoned, you know, five times. He received the 39 lashes, 40 minus one, bitten by a snake. You know, Luke would have been with him there, even though God performed a miracle. You know, there's a doctor there to confirm. Uh, his thorn, on the thorn in the flesh, which maybe we think could possibly be eye trouble for Paul. He needed to have a physician around, a doctor around. And what a gift to have a, a Jesus-loving man of prayer like Luke to be your doctor. Wouldn't you like to have a doctor like that? Let's begin with prayer. <laughs> Let's look to the great physician first, and then we'll deal with this. What an awesome thing to have a man like Luke there. And all along, Luke's documenting everything, documenting church history, researching the works of the apostles and the early church, and we're blessed because of Luke. We have the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You know, so it's, you read this list, and it's just, to me, amazing how God blesses us with people in our lives. Think about your friends, you know. Think about the relationships you have in the kingdom of God. Those people that God has placed into your life. And how they serve as an encouragement for your faith. How they've walked through the trenches of life with you. God has put them there and he has put you into their lives. And thank God for our friends in the kingdom of God. Aren't you grateful for them? Luke stuck it out with Paul, man, thick and thin to the very end. And I think he's a great example of someone who was a professional and used their skills for the kingdom of God. A good friend, a skilled physician, a careful documenter or recorder of church history and most importantly, a sold-out follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you got this guy, Demas, who's like the polar opposite. Okay, Demas is there, and you're like, well, who's Demas? Well, Demas is mentioned three times in the writings of Paul. Demas is uh, first mentioned in the letter to Philemon, and, and there Paul calls Demas, uh, along with Mark and Aristarchus and Luke, a fellow worker. So Demas is called first in scripture, a fellow worker. But here in the letter to Colossians, Demas is only mentioned by name. No, no description. Nothing specific. No specific word given regards, with regards to his service to Paul or serving or sharing in the gospel message. The third time that Demas is mentioned in scripture is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul's last letter. And Paul reports to Timothy that Demas has deserted him. He says, Demas deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica because he is in love. Not in love with some nice young woman in the church in Thessalonica. 
But because Paul says he deserted me, he is in love with this present world. And so as we talked about earlier, Mark at one time abandoned Paul, but Mark was eventually restored, overcame the past, and went on to serve well in the kingdom of God. Demas deserted Paul. And as far as we know, he never comes back on the scene. There is reason to believe he abandoned Paul. There was sin in his life. And the sin was this. He loved the world. He loved the world. Love of this present world means this, is that he was caught up in the things of this world, caught up in the value system of this world. And I, I think about that and it's like, okay, here he was at one time serving the Lord. And that just doesn't happen overnight, does it? Demas, when he first came to Jesus, was on fire in his faith, enough that Paul saw something of value in this man, and he came into Paul's inner circle, and he served the churches and served the kingdom of God. And to me, Demas is a great warning in Scripture. In the Christian life, we have to continue to stoke the the flame of our faith. We need times of spiritual renewal, weeks of prayer, times away. We need daily times in God's word. Because the Christian life is not static, is it? You're either growing spiritually, growing in intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, or we're letting things get cold in that relationship, and it can begin to slip from the height it once had, you know, We all know that we can play that game, put up the facade. Like Demas at some point in time was putting on the religious facade, putting up the veneer of spiritual health. And at the same time, his heart was far from Jesus and it was slipping away. And it's a a dangerous picture for us. An Old Testament example of this is Gehazi. Gehazi was the servant of the prophet Elisha. Remember that story when Naaman came from Aram? He was a, it was a soldier in the army, an officer, and he came to the land of Israel because he heard that there was a prophet in Israel and he could be prayed for and be healed of his leprosy. The story's told in 2 Kings chapter 5. And so Elisha, uh, Naaman came to Elisha and Elisha instructed him, go to the Jordan River, bathe seven times, and you'll be healed. And 2 Kings tells us that at first, Naaman resisted the prophet's instruction. He thought, this is ridiculous. Like, go wash in a river and I'll, I'll be healed. But eventually, he followed through, went and washed in the Jordan River, and he was healed. And so Naaman, when he saw that he was healed, returned to Elisha, and he brought gifts to Elisha. He wanted to give him treasures from the land from which he had camped. But Elisha refused to accept the gifts. And so Naaman went on his way. But Gehazi thought to himself, the the servant of Elisha, my master has let this guy off, man. Like this was an amazing miracle. He offered gifts like we should have taken some of that stuff. So secretly, without Elisha knowing, he ran after Naaman and he tracked him down. And he lied to get some of the gifts for himself. And he got the gifts. But when he returned to Elisha, Elisha, the spirit of God, told him what was going on. And Elisha confronted him. And Gehazi was struck with the leprosy that had been Naaman's and lived out the rest of his life as a leper. 
And it's like, there's Gehazi, you know, running after the things of this world. There's Demas in the New Testament in love with this present world. And there has to be this check in the heart of every follower of Jesus where we ask our self-questions. What's motivating me? What do I love? Demas loved the world and he became a deserter. Gehazi loved the things of this world and he became a leper. And and for us, we always need to be asking, are, are we allowing the Spirit of God to stoke the flame in our belly for the kingdom of God? Or are we hiding love for this world with a veneer of spirituality? What makes you run? What do you love? We don't know what happened to Demas. He's a great warning. You know, I was thinking about it because we've all been in these situations like it happens all the time in church, right? Where you're like in some small group or men's Bible study. We've had this conversation a few times or sometimes on a Sunday morning. We say this, can someone lose their salvation? Did Demas lose his salvation? You know, the scripture is full of enough promises that I would say this. We can have absolute assurance of our salvation. And we can pray and wrestle in prayer for others to have it like Epaphras did. But the scripture is also full of just enough examples of men like Demas or Gehazi to keep us asking the question, can it happen? And that's why we need to keep cultivating our relationship with Jesus. It's the wrong question to ask. The question should be this. Is the fire stoked in my own heart? Am I on with the Lord or am I resting on laurels? You know, I bet Demas learned to rest on his laurels. You know that saying, resting on your laurels? That's a reference to the ancient practice going back to the athletic events of the Greeks and the first Olympics where victorious athletes had a laurel wreath placed on, on their head and it was the, the sign, the symbol, it signified and celebrated that they were victorious. And resting on your laurels means this, resting on past victories. Remember that time way back, you know, like some high school athlete? Remember that time? That was awesome, man. No one remembers but that guy, of course. Look, the point is this. In Christ, you need fresh victories. You need fresh stories. You need new stories of God's work. And if all you have is old stories, maybe it's time to ask the Lord for some new stories. Demas, de Demas demonstrated enough love for Christ and for his church that he was in Paul's inner circle, but he was a deserter for he loved the present world, which is a temptation for all of us. Look at verse 15. Paul says this, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So, you know, there's a, a few references to Laodicea here and references to another letter, actually, which we don't, which we don't have, wasn't preserved, didn't end up in our Bibles. But Paul passes on greetings. And I love this. Uh, well, Laodicea was close to, this, to the city of Colossae, but what we find out, and there was a church there, but what we find out was that the church in Colossae met in the home of a woman named Nympha, which is a very common place for a church to start, isn't it? In someone's home. Very common in the 
early centuries of Christianity for the church to meet in someone's house. Many churches today start that way. CTK started that way, right, Greg? You were there. Was anybody else there back in the day? Calvin, were you there? You weren't there. No, Greg was there. CTK started in someone's living room. That's how churches often start. With the early church, it wasn't until Christians uh, were free from the persecution of the Romans and the government that they began to meet in public buildings and construct churches themselves. And in many places in our world, we know this, that churches still meet for purposes of survival in people's living rooms, right? We're fortunate that's not the case. Aren't you glad that we can gather publicly in our nation? You have the doors open. The praise of Jesus can go out. We, we can have a sign up. We can invite others to come. We know this. There's always that threat that the day will come when Maybe that can't happen here. We'll be back in a living room. Maybe the day will come when churches in Canada lose their tax exemption status. And who knows what will happen? You know, this year for the first time, uh, the town of Gibson's for our tax exemption uh, for our annex property down the road there, uh, I think it was seven pages. Seven pages. Not just, you know, historically like in Canada we've done give an exemption to a church and then, you know, maybe it was one page before with a little bit of information, but this year for the first time, it was seven pages. He said, we'd like to know how your church is aligning with the values of the town of Gibsons. He said, we'd like to know what you're doing for creating climate resiliency in Gibsons. He said, we would like to know what your church is doing to support homelessness and Gibsons and all these sorts of things. And I, I saw that letter. I tell you, I was just ripping mad at first. I'm like, I'm not answering this. And then I, uh, I prayed and, and just felt like, okay, this is the opportunity. So I just preached the gospel in the whole letter, man. I gave like a whole, you know, doctrine of stewardship in the earth and not talking about climate, but talking about dominion and ruling and being a steward and shared the gospel in there and said, actually, this is the values that we have. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. Sin repentance and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe we'll be back in a living room one day. And praise the Lord. He builds his church. Amen. Verse 16. Paul says this. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So I, I like this because Paul's concern was that the word of God was being read and studied and taught. You know, it's very early on in the history of the church that Paul's letters were already acknowledged as being the word of God. Peter himself says that and gives reference to that. And so, you know, there was probably just one copy of this letter to the church in Colossae to start. So it had to be passed around between the churches and Paul says, have it read out loud. That's actually what the verbiage communicates. Not just read it, but have it read out loud in the assembly of God's people. Uh, just like Paul instructed Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching and preaching. You know, there was a time in my life, I don't know if some of you are like this, but there was a time in my life that it, to read publicly was like, stick a knife in my heart before that. I just hated it. I hated it. I, I was embarrassed. 
I didn't want to make a fool of myself in front of people. Then actually I saw in my own quiet time the command to Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So I decided in my heart that when I had the opportunity, when opportunities were given to read Scripture, I would do so to read it publicly. So my hand would go up in a Bible study or in church or in a class, wherever it was, and the Lord helped me. I encourage you, when those opportunities come, jump on them. God's word is powerful. It's to be read out loud and it speaks. And I love this. Paul doesn't tell him, you know, give your little edit, dumb it down, change it to meet the problem. Just read it. Read it out loud. Read the letter out loud and let the word of God deal with the situation. Whatever it is, it will be applicable to the people of God and God will speak. And so our chippus is also told here, see to it that you complete the work that you've received in the Lord. So our Chippus had a ministry. We don't know what it was. But Paul acknowledged God gave you that ministry, our Chippus. It's a gift from him. And you're going to be accountable for that which God has given you. So be faithful. Do the work that you're being called to do. You know, when you think about ministry... So often we think about ministry as something that we do for God. But ministry is actually something God does through us. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us. That we're God's workmanship. That we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. It's God's ministry. This is God's church. It's his glory. It's his honor. It's his power. He's prepared it in advance. Him working through and in us. Do the ministry God has called you to do. Archippus. And you, my brothers and sisters. And then the last verse here of this great little letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And so as this Letter closes, I just think to myself this. I'm like, wow, this is not just some random list of people, is it? It's like, these were people who for the sake of the kingdom, the Lord had caused their lives to rub up against one another. To encourage one another. To spur one another on. To disciple one another. To serve alongside of one another. I'm sure there was lots of dynamics between them. Times when... They had problems and challenges and things to work through, times to forgive and to ask for forgiveness, to have grace upon one another. And it's beautiful. That's what the body of Christ is. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was wrestling through the will of God and preparing to go to the cross before he was betrayed, the scripture tells us that as he was there spending time with the Lord and the disciples had gone to sleep, that God sent an angel and an angel came and ministered to him and strengthened him. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? And I have no doubt that at times the Lord may do that for you as well, for me as well, that we're strengthened by angels at various times. But I don't think that that's God's usual mode of operation. Typically, he sends a friend. He sends someone like a Barnabas, who was an encourager, a brother in the Lord, or 
sends a sister in the Lord to serve alongside. You know, he can send an angel, but I would say this. It's more likely in your life God's going to send a brother or sister in Christ. You know, Moses, when he was told that he wouldn't be entering the promised land, you remember that story? Led the children of Israel out of the land of slavery in Egypt. He had led them for 40 years in the wilderness. But God told him this. You, Moses, personally are not going to enter into the promised land. Because you were angry with the people and you did not uphold me as holy before them. And so the Lord told Moses that the children of Israel would be led into the promised land by his assistant Joshua. And then God gave Moses this instruction. Now encourage him. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. It's crazy to me that the ministry for Moses wasn't over just because he wasn't getting to do what he wanted to do. It, it wasn't over because it wasn't unfolding like he thought it would unfold. It wasn't over because it wasn't going down and playing out like he had dreamed and like he had envisioned. I can imagine that he had envisioned entering the promised land, but because of some decisions he had made, it didn't play out like he had hoped. But the Lord said to him, it's not meaningless. Now you encourage your brother. God gave him someone to encourage. God gave him someone to build up. God gave him someone to strengthen. God gave him someone to walk alongside and to mentor and encourage in the Lord. See, all this I, I would tell you if I could encourage you this morning is just to remind you of this, and I know you know it. Kingdom friendships are a real gift, aren't they? Even when you're grieving with your friends, you know, and celebrating a marriage at the same time, and hardly see one another very often. Because in the kingdom of God, every name matters. <laughs> like the Lord writes it down in the Lamb's book of life. And Christianity, it, it's Christ. That's what, what we saw right from the start of the letter to Colossians. Christianity is Christ. And when we serve Christ, what he does is he, he brings us into a body. He brings us together. And so, may the Lord help you stand firm in the will of God. May the Lord make you mature and fully assured And like Paul wrote to the Colossian church, may the grace of the Lord be with you.